0: Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike and Navina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is J.J. Blair, and if you're not familiar with J.J., he's worked with a ton of great artists, including Johnny Cash, Weezer... P. Diddy, Rod Stewart, Smokey Robinson, Joe Bonamassa, Body Count, and so many, so many more. And in this interview, J.J. does a great job of describing the process of recording vocals and how to get a pro vocal sound and all of the little considerations that have to go into it. And also we get into the topic of understanding your signal hierarchy and what elements are the most important in your signal chain so that you can make sure that you're picking the right tools for the job and paying attention to the most important things. Because oftentimes, you know, it's so easy to buy into marketing hype. A lot of different manufacturers are going to say that their their piece of equipment is going to get you the best sound. But does it really? Or is it just part of the chain and other things are more important? And that's definitely something that we get into in this interview here. And so JJ just shares a ton of great advice about that. We also get into some other techniques about miking up drums. And JJ also has a really cool technique when it comes to miking up snare drums. And he shares that in this interview. And we also get into his experience in working with Johnny Cash and what that experience was like. And I think it's a, it's a really cool story to hear. So I'm excited for you to hear this episode. Let's just jump right into this interview. JJ Blair, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Mike. Thanks for asking me to do this. Of course. For people who might not know your background or how you got into music and ultimately into production and mixing and all the stuff that you're working on these days, can you give us that story?
1: In a nutshell, I'm primarily a musician, and uh, I I tend to make my living, you know, as an engineer, mixer, producer. Um, These days, I'm getting hired more to uh, uh, produce and mix. Or engineer makes them to produce um, for whatever reason, but uh, for me, you know, the the recording studio is a musical instrument, and it's a part of music I've been fascinated with as soon as I knew it existed. So um, it was, you know, recording was something that I I always wanted to be involved in ever since uh, you know my I grew up with reel to reel recorders in the house and would play with them and learned how to edit as a kid and a number of other things. And, uh, when I was in high school, um, even before, you know, I had a little task multi multitrack, I figured out how to overdub by basically recording from one cassette player to the next and, and going, you know, and recording on top of that. Um, and it's just always a part of, of, uh, of things that fascinated me. Even, you know, when I, when I started listening to, uh, records, I started noticing the production and, looking at the notes and seeing who produced and things like that and and that was uh um something that always uh, drew my uh, fascination uh and it's always been an important aspect of, of music for me because i like you know i like live music but i like records you know like records really do something for me and uh and i've always been interested in that difference between uh, a performance and a record and all the little extra information uh and production things that 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 make a record special um and that's i guess and i'm lucky i'm lucky enough that i i, I get to keep doing that so i found a way in and and have kind of stayed here
0: <laughs> that's awesome yeah i love that and i love how you kind of describe this process of being in the studio almost as if it's like playing an instrument cuz it absolutely is i, I mean it takes just the same amount of skill if not more in some ways and and you know there's a lot of um there's a lot of little details that go into making a solid record you know and it's there's psychology to it there's the actual technical side of it all that kind of stuff so you you, you really do have to dive deep with it well even when i'm
1: just the engineer on a record i you know i'm bringing a lot of my musical knowledge and musicality to uh To the situation because it's not just i'm not just watching meters and making sure that something doesn't go into the red or whatever i'm i'm listening and asking myself how does this sit in the context of this other music you know am i using does this sound like the right vocal mic for this voice and this sound am i using the right amount of compression in this setting or whatnot and That's really the difference between someone who's been doing this for a long time and someone who just started doing this because I I now know what to listen for. And I listen to records I did 20 plus years ago and they're solid, but I hear things that I go like, ah, the drums. There's a little weird thing about that room that I hear that I would have made sure I didn't hear that thing about that room in this record that's now bugging me a little bit are various things like that and 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 that's just something that comes uh, from time. Um, and I guess you know you can know how to record and know a lot of basics, but essentially, you don't know what you don't know until you know it if that makes any sense.
0: <laughs> it totally makes sense. yeah, of course. And I think you know i I, I deal with that a lot of, a lot because I, I do a lot of coaching for for students, and it's the same thing. It's like. It, people always feel like oh i'm like 80% of the way there but i'm stuck and it's like okay well we got, we got to figure out what that 20% is cuz that what you don't know is the thing you need to to know and that you know if you look at that 80/20 principle oftentimes that 20% is 80% of the results that you need right to like to feel satisfied and you know it's it's a lot of those little details yeah i, I love that the way you, you approach that as far as learning the side of the technical side of recording you know, how did you learn to do it? Was it just all literally like trial and error, or did you have any sort of formal education with it? Uh, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um let me see. I uh I knew it was something I wanted to do. I knew production was something I wanted to get involved in. So when I got out of high school, I tried to get an internship at a recording studio in Chicago where I grew up. And I didn't realize that you know, interns at studios, they're not just, they're just not looking for like summer interns that they're looking for. So I couldn't get one, but I was able to get, uh, an internship at an ad agency. Um, and I and I was attached to your producer. So I'd go to all his recording sessions and, and I was keeping an eye on everything and asking lots of questions and, and, and getting yelled at by the producer for not keeping my mouth shut. But, uh, but I learned a lot, you know, I, I would just, um, you know, to, to watch to watch somebody uh, edit quarter inch tape on um, a dialogue reel uh, when you're 18 is actually you can learn a lot from that. Uh, if you're paying attention to a number of other things and, and how they were making the music for for uh, jingles and whatnot. And then uh, I uh, went to a school called University of Redlands because I knew that they had a recording program. And I think I had my, I had a task camp 388 at the time, which I brought along and that kind of got, that sat in the school. Yeah, so I was able to, through that class, I was able to learn a lot of the fundamentals that are so valuable that I think a lot of people don't know about such things as, you know, phase and how a compressor works and, and um, just a lot of the textbook uh, basics of 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 recording because it is you know it it is science actually and it's good to know you know some of the you don't you don't necessarily need to know the mathematical equations but the concepts are really handy to know uh and and you can avoid a lot of the things that are problems that you get from you know when i'm when somebody who didn't have that teaching and i get something to mix you know right away it's like oh this is stuff they didn't learn because here's some real fundamental issues so that was really handy and i you know fortunately now um there is youtube and the internet and and all sorts of uh resources available that were not available to me in the in the in the late 80s um but some of it's garbage I mean there's a lot of people I just there's some videos that I watch like oh this is how you you know do a vocal and I'm just like no that's that's not that's not how you do a vocal well I mean that's how you do a vocal if you really want to make life a pain in the ass for yourself but um yeah it's there's a lot of people who uh are more interested in in getting a following and uh and deriving some type of income from views and from actually giving helpful information um, is, is what it looks like to me.
0: <laughs> of course. I mean, like the goal with all of this, it should be to always be helping people actually get a result, you know? <laughs> well, but yeah, like I
1: said, you don't you don't know what you don't know until you know.
0: <laughs> of course. Of course. Well, it's funny. You mentioned like um, watching videos of people doing vocals improperly. You know, what, uh, as far as like recording vocals, let's talk a little bit about your, your process. Like, you know, what are some of the mistakes that you commonly see people making versus how, how you would treat a vocal session? Well,
1: I'll, I will tell you the, the session I was just on right now, it's with a, you know, with a successful session singer. And she was talking about how during lockdown she had to learn how to uh, record herself. And she just said, "It's so nice to be able to work with an engineer and have it sound good and you know, to me and and so the first thing to know is, in terms of, and it's really anything you're playing if if you're listening and it sounds good, it's a lot easier to perform. But vocals are so it, it's really so important to to uh, hear yourself well and feel comfortable. And, and just knowing that going going in uh, can help people. So my idea is make it sound like a record on the way in. I do not EQ to on the way in. That's simply my own thing. I'm not saying it's wrong, but there's a lot of reasons I don't do that. One is because I have to go back and change things at some point and and uh, maybe have somebody come in several days later and touch stuff up. Uh, their voice might be a little bit different and the EQ you pick one day may not, you know, uh, or if it if it's not something with the detent, you may not get the exact same setting. And so the main EQ that I choose is the microphone. And I'm very lucky that I have just a r- ridiculous amount of vintage and, and great new mics. So I can go and I, I can hear a voice and pretty much tell right away, this is a 47 person. This is a 251 person. This is a 67, you know, whatever it is. I don't like to do a lot of shootouts. I think they're a waste of time, but sometimes we'll just go like, we'll put up, maybe every once in a while, we'll put up two, three mics if if it helps whoever is producing, if it's not me, to feel confident. Uh, but if I put up the wrong mic, I pretty much know right away. I don't need to choose different mics. I I'll, 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 I'll go with my instinct. I, I know the sound of my mics really well. Then I can basically tell by somebody's voice. And here's an interesting thing, you know. Sometimes you're wrong. I I, I, um, I work with Smokey Robinson a lot, and the first time I worked with him, because you know he's got that high, you know, falsetto <laughs> thing. I did. Uh, that's not an imitation. I'm just because I do. <laughs> that's a lousy imitation. But but I'm just explaining where his voice is. I was like, oh, that's a two fifty one. There's a lot of air. It's falsetto. And what I didn't know was there is this little harmonic. Thing in his voice that on a two fifty one just came across like an ice pick because the because a a, a two fifty one has a really nice high end extension. It's very smooth. It's very sexy, but on certain voices where there's like gravel or vocal fry or something, it can, it can really betray you. And I threw that up and I was like, and I heard it. and I was like, oh shit. Um, so I. From then on, I was like, I need to go to something that'll sound airy, but not be that forward. And we chose the 49, and that's the mic I've always used with him. So that's using the mic as EQ. There's other things you can do. You can, you know, turn it off axis. You can change uh, the polarity. Um, People don't know this, but figure eight makes it darker. Uh, I've put the 251 on people where it was like the right mic, but just too sibilant. And I put it in figure eight, and that was it. And I did the record with 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 a 251 in figure eight to to tame the sibilance on the mic. So th- that's one way to EQ with the mic, and then you don't ever have to touch an EQ. You know, you have proximity effect. The further away you take it from from the person, the less bass there is. Uh, you have off-axis response. The more I turn it, the less top end there is. Those are ways to, you know, EQ a vocal without having to use an EQ. I like a mic pre was a lot of headroom. I like a very open mic pre Uh, I use a Vac rack mic pre. And the reason I like a lot of headroom, I I started out liking Neve 1073s on vocals, but then I would have somebody like dig into the mic, you know, they dig into their vocal and they could do that thing where it would just, it would distort and over-modulate. And that's just because, you know, there's headroom issues on Neve sometimes if you're kind of up against it. Uh, And, and I, Not only did I just think that the back rack sounded better than the Neve, I never had that problem. So that's usually a go-to for me. I have one that I can bring with me when I don't have sessions here. Uh, And then the compressor is super important and compression is such an important aspect of a good sounding vocal. It's really going to help the singer to hear themselves compressed. They're going to hear the little nuances it's going to smooth their vocal out. They're going to feel more comfortable. And if you know how to compress right, you know, you you just put it to tape that way. Um, and for me, the trick is to have something with a fast-ish attack, like an LA-2A is too slow. And what I mean by that is it kicks in like a little bit slower. So the thing that gets in first is... The transient. And so it'll, so you'll, you'll increase your sibilance with an LA2A. So that's why I don't like LA2As on vocal. Sometimes people will put them after an 1176 or whatever. I don't really like to stack compressors too much on vocals. Uh, but 1176 is just, that's a phenomenal, it's super quick. It sounds so good when you dig into it. And this is something else that compressors do that people aren't aware of. The more gain reduction you have, the more harmonic content will come up. Um, You'll start getting, you know, uh, depends on what circuit is, but typically you'll start getting more even harmonics coming up and that helps a vocal sound thicker and adds character to it. Um, And, and the type of uh, compression you use can also sort of increase the sound of their air and make them sound airier. Um, and it just in the end, that just makes a vocal sound much more professional and sound like a record. And and that's always my goal is like I want it to, you know, I, I just want people to put up faders and go like, oh, you know, this sounds pretty close to a record. There's always tweaks you want to make. I think early on I was too interested in recording flat. And then uh I I realized like have an opinion and, and stick to it and and you don't know. And, and whoever else is going to have to work on this later on, I want them to work with my opinion. I don't want them to reinterpret. my, <laughs> You know, I don't I don't want to leave anything open for interpretation. I want like this was this was the sound I chose at that time for a reason. And you're stuck with it. So,
0: yeah, I love it. man. like that, I, it's such a great point that you bring up about using microphones as an EQ, because so many people don't think about that. Um so as far as because you'd mentioned like you're not doing shootouts and that kind of thing, you kind of just, you know, by now your experience has told you what mics to use when. But as far as um, learning your microphones and, and kind of identifying maybe like the, the frequency uh, response of them and that kind of thing, like what advice would you give to people to learn their microphones so that they can make those decisions on the fly? Well, you
1: know, I'm not saying that these things are accurate because they're not. But There's no playing one way with of, But playing with some of those mic modeling things should give you an idea. Uh, it should give you an idea of what something's supposed to sound like or what it does. And and look, if you only have access to one or two microphones in your studio, it doesn't matter. You got to learn how to work with that one. And, and, and you're probably just trying to find the one that works best for you. Uh, and, and my advice usually to people is you know rent or borrow figure something out see um maybe you you buy from you know like like i know vintage king has a place that you can you can go in and and and, and demo lots of different microphones and we did that for uh um edgar Winter just put out a record and and my uh my good friend ross hogarth produced it and uh they picked my brain to help edgar find a mic and so we went they went to vintage king they brought over a ton of mics and we threw them all up and we went through and we listened and and then we found the one that worked best for him in that case we did do a shootout because this was something that he was going to buy and he was going to keep um and he wanted the one that he thought matched his matched his voice the best and that's you know so so that's that's kind of my advice is is you kind of need to listen and and see what works i mean look sm7s aren't expensive they're pretty idiot proof you can get a decent sound on them and uh you know ed Cherney had told me that was the half the time on bonnie Raitt records that was an sm7 uh, and they've been on so many records and, and and that'll work and there's a number of things you can do with it um but there's for me there's something about condenser mics particularly tube condenser mics on vocals and i'm just a fetishist for mics because it's for me it's the most important it's the most important part of the signal path it's the transducer it's what it's literally what's taking uh the you know sound in the air and converting it into an electric current that's the part that's doing it and that's. That's the ability for magic to happen at that stage, you know. It can be an expensive prospect, especially with vintage mics. They've really gone nuts, but there's some there's some new stuff that's really great as well. Uh, so you don't really have to uh, mortgage the house to get a good microphone. <laughs> but it's but it's for me a very important aspect of my process on anything. First thing I'm thinking about is, what does this sound like? What mic do I want? it?" And, and to me, that's more important than what mic pre am I using? What converter am I using? It's more about the microphone.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, you always, I feel like online you always read things about like, oh, this preamp makes such a big difference and you know, this converter makes such a big difference. And yeah, I'm sure that they, they do. But when you think about that signal chain and the hierarchy of it, and the way the signal flows in like that very first thing in line is your microphone. So it makes sense. You have to consider the importance of that. Yeah, when you when
1: you when you get to mic pre and converter, you're thinking about how much is this not screwing it up? It's not like what's it adding to it? Like a microphone's really actually adding to it. There's so much going on in the way it's shaping the sound.
0: Yeah, makes sense as far as the um recording you had mentioned like you always want to sound as finished as possible on the way in. so are you even tracking with like effects or like like reverb or delay or that kind of thing?
1: Most singers like to hear themselves with reverb and so I will set up a reverb for them. Uh, I'm rarely printing it unless I'm at a studio that has a chamber or a plate that has like the sound and I want to keep that but i I've I'm working with with a vocalist on a record right now. Like she doesn't want reverb. She feels it's cheating. She wants to hear sort of any mistakes. And I know people who just don't like the sound of reverb, um, but I think reverb's helpful. And I'm working in the box the majority of the time, you know, it's up, it's usually up to the mixer, whatever reverb they want, but I'll, you know, I just, I, I, I'm i going to have one of my favorite reverbs on that session uh for the vocal as we're working with it which is going to be usually the the UAD uh cap- capital chambers.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I mean whatever you can do to make that singer feel more comfortable and get that better performance, right? That that's kind of the whole point of what you're saying here is just like make them sound as best as they can be in their head and then they'll they'll feel great and they'll give a better performance
1: which by the way doesn't always mean using the best sounding mic uh i worked with an artist who's had the same U8, u87 since the 70s and i i'm not a fan of u87s they're not i mean they're not they, they were great mics as a microphone that would work on everything but they rarely ever win a shootout for me and on vocals they tend to sound a little boxy for me and i put this glorious m49 on him and everyone in the control room was like oh my god that sounds so good and the singer was like it doesn't sound like me i don't like it i need my 87 you know which was not as good a sound but that's what he was comfortable with and that's the most important thing was that he sounded like him that he wasn't fighting his vocal sound that's what he wanted to sound like and and so we we gave him his 87 and uh, we just had to you know make it sound a little less whatever it was in the mix
0: for sure. Yeah, that's really, really good point. And it's funny. Cause I was actually, um, before this interview, I was interviewing, uh, Sarah Carter. I'm not sure if you're familiar, if you're familiar with her, but she was recording Corinne Bailey Ray and she was talking about how when she recorded her, uh, she used to always put compression on the vocals on the way in and, and Corinne basically was like, I can't have compression on my headphone mix cause it's going to screw me up. And it was like, okay, well then that's, that's what we do. Like, you know, It's just whatever you can do. And not every singer is going to be as aware of of the signal chain and how that affects them, but you have to be able to read the room as well.
1: Brandon Fields, who's a very well-known saxophone player, he was like, he's like, no compression. You know, he just, he didn't want any compression uh, because it was going to mess up his sense of dynamic. And I was like, all right, you
0: got it. Yep. (laughs) so then with the mics being the most important thing how do you feel about all of these mic modeling mics that are coming out i think it's an interesting concept i beta
1: tested one of them they didn't like what i had to say (laughs) (laughs) which was like i'm like because i had a lot of the mics they were modeling i was just like it doesn't sound like them you know it's it's and they disagreed and i was like all right well i don't know why you hired me but this is my you know this, this is my <laughs> forte here. someone directed you to me for a reason and i i think it's you know conceptually it's great and 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 some of these various ones uh these there's a couple different ones and some of them actually have things that are very handy like the fact that you can uh um you know, you m- remember how I said figure eight makes it darker, mm-hmm. but figure eight, one of the benefits of figure eight is the off axis rejection. So, you know, anything that's 90 degrees off axis, um, should be a lot quieter. So it's a good, um, polar pattern to choose if you've got like an acoustic guitar and a vocal, and you're trying to keep the acoustic out of the vocal. Uh, so some of these modeling mics, can bring in the back capsule without making it dark. Uh, and then you get the rejection. So, you know, there, there's some interesting technology in terms of that. It's not that I don't, it's, it's like microphones are so, and, and, and I, I don't mean this in, in terms of like the, the the mixed meaning, but they're so dynamic in terms of their response that it's not a static response to how they react to anything. I think it requires so much, uh, uh, processing to to include every aspect of it it's not just a, it's just not just a frequency curve or or some type of uh harmonic distortion that's going on and a lot of them it's just like yeah this sort of sounds like a 47 it's missing that thing it's missing that thing that like a 47 47 is the tube is extremely microphonic and that's part of what makes a 47 have this sort of uh, uh, chesty mid range that the tube starts sort of activating and ringing up and you get this little harmonic overtone that happens. Uh, and how do you model that? I don't know. On the other hand, I will tell you that there was a vocal that um, was cut with a 57 into a Mackie onto an ADAT. And people used to go, man, that sounds so amazing. What's that mic? And I'm like, it's a 57 into a Mackie (laughs) what you're hearing is the 1073 EQ and the shitload of 1176 compression I put on it that's what you're reacting to that's that exciting part so anything that anybody is going to use that's within their means that helps them get a sound that works is fine uh and 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 I, I don't think that they're not a valid tool. I think they're an extremely valid tool an extremely helpful tool an extremely good tool for people to, to educate themselves. I, I just think that the hype isn't, you know, they don't, they don't live up to the hype of what they're supposed to be. And that's, you know, that's just for my sure. opinion, but
0: yeah. And, and it's also like, what do you Sorry, expect? My buddy with- Stephen
1: Slate's going to disagree with me on that one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's also like, what do you expect with like a, a $600 microphone or something like that, you know, compared to, you know, these mics that go into the tens of thousands, you know, it's, there, there's going to be differences and you just have to accept that it is, it's a completely different tool that is just kind of an EQ graph. Yeah, more or less. I mean, look,
1: I have come to mix completely in the box for a number of reasons, one being the recallability. Uh, and the reliability. And I use, um, you know, 95% of my plugins are are UA recreations of other stuff. Um, And do they sound exactly like that? They're pretty darn close, you know, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it sounds exactly like it. It's just sort of, it's doing the general principle and me getting, me being able to sort of get, like I know, I know why I want to use an EVQ here as opposed to a Trident EQ, as opposed to uh, whatever SSL EQ or something, and and I'll and I'll just go in that, and it doesn't really matter that it's not exactly the same thing. It's it's more kind of like this is the direction of how I want this thing to sound, and it's the same thing with the vocal. It's like it is is. I don't think anybody's ever going to be able to model a 251. It's just too complex, uh, sonically. Like what's going on inside the thing. Uh, you just, unless there's going to be like a standalone computer or something, but, um, does that mean you can't get a great vocal sound that isn't going to be useful on some record? Of course not.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, to to go along with the the idea of like a vocal session or, or really any is any recording session for that matter i've heard you talk about how you like to work really fast when you're tracking and you kind of don't like to really spend a lot of time in the setup and you just like to be ready to go um i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you like to prepare for your sessions so that they can run efficiently and quick
1: first thing is i always try to have a game plan if i'm working at another studio i will coordinate with the assistant there and make sure you know find out what mics are available i'll give them i'll I'll send my whole uh sheet of like this is what i want on what going through what patch it this way insert this and that usually starts if if i'm producing you know i have an idea of what i'm going for if i'm not producing i'm asking the producer what do you want this to sound like what are what are we going for and i ask and and it's very helpful when people Pick specific references because, you know, what is, I don't know what big means. I don't know what old means. I don't know what dusty means. You know, we have different versions of what that means. So I go, what record are you hearing, you know, that you want something to sound like? Uh, and that gives me uh, an easy reference point. And so I'll start thinking about how I want to do something based on that. And not every session's a record too. You know, the thing I'm doing right now is for a TV show. So they just, you know, I, I'm, I'm just sort doing sort of a, a, an uncomplicated what's a great vocal sound that I know that's going to work with this. But this is also where, you know, musicality comes in. Uh, I'm helping someone with a record right now that they're producing themselves and they asked me to help produce their vocals but one song they're like, something's not working. And I'm like, it's the drums. Like the drums are good, but they're, they're missing the point. And, and, and I said, look, here's what, if they played this pattern instead? And then it was like, and then not have it sound just like a drum kit. We got to sort of tweak and, 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 you know, uh, do some prepared drum sounds and go for something a little out of the box and not just be, your standard drum kit. And, and, and it's, it's fun to see how many people on like Instagram are doing that lately. They're really trying to, you know, get different sounding drums because I don't know if it's the influence of hip hop or what, or, or a lot of the lo-fi stuff. It's been, uh, been fun to watch uh, a lot of guys who get sent tracks to do stuff to like, you know, they're, they're like, how weird can I make this snare drum sound? So um.
0: Did that answer the question or was there any, any other part of the question? So the question was more just about, you know, like creating efficiency for your oh, sessions. All right. And Sorry. Yeah, that's right. that's right. That's right. And I think and I, and I definitely think everything you said there, everything you said there definitely applies so, to like having so a vision yeah, on so the that's, way in. So that's where we were. Sorry.
1: So so pre, so that's pre-production. So pre-production is going to save you a lot of time and money in production uh, because studio time can be expensive. And um, and having a plan, you know, and you always have to be able to change a plan, but also just being nimble and knowing what you're doing and something's always going to go wrong. There's always going to be some type of troubleshooting thing. You're going to have some noise you're chasing down. There's some mic that's not going to be working. Um, if you want to learn how to be fast, you have to know how to troubleshoot. Is it at the mic? Is it at the cable? Is it at the patch bay? Is it you know, what is it? Is it the pre, where is it? And, and knowing I, I, I've been on sessions in big studios where the engineer, where the second engineers suck at that. And it's annoying because you're paying a bunch of money um, and, and they're wasting valuable time. That's not only eating into the clock, it's eating into uh, the creativity. And uh, so Knowing how to troubleshoot is something, to go- is something good to learn and be fast at so that you can chase things down. I was having that in the session just now. Um, we just started getting like this weird sort of blip sound and I could see, it was even, you could see it in the waveform on Pro-, Pro Tools. There'd be like a little weird tail. And I was just able to quickly diagnose by saying, oh, it's happening on the VUs of the trees I'm not using. It's in the power supply. So how am I going to rectify this? How am I going to be able to keep using this, you know, swap it over to another rack with a different power supply and it goes away and do that really quickly so that this double scale session singers time isn't being wasted and it's costing more money. And that's, and and if you really want to learn how to be quick, get yourself hired on jingle and TV sessions where they're paying people double scale, you know, union dates (laughs) will get you quick because you will not get hired on another union date if you are slow. (laughs)
0: I love that. Yeah, and I agree. I I think, you know, some some of the troubleshooting side of it has to just do with like your own experiences. And the more you have to troubleshoot, the more you find those solutions. But um, I agree, though, it's like, you can't just be like, Oh, why is that happening? hmm, let me just sit here and think about this and not actually try anything yeah. to fix this problem. You know, it's because <laughs> that happens so often. And it's just like, well, you're not going to get anywhere just by looking. And at And it's going to happen
1: thing. on every session, you know, it, it, in the best studios in the world, it's going to happen. There's going to be something somewhere that's not working the way it's supposed to, because there's a lot of electrons flying around and a lot of stuff to go wrong.
0: For sure. Yeah, it's it's like one of one of my favorite most used tools in the studio is my cable tester. Do you have the little <laughs> behringer like, one? I do every session. It's a Yeah, I have like uh yeah, like one of the no name ones, something like the Behringer one. But yeah, it's just like that has saved me so many times. Like the beginning of a session, it's I've already figured out half the problems that are gonna happen. So it's like by the time the artist comes in, it's it's a smooth smooth session from there because there's no problems. I've already diagnosed. Yeah, I I, uh,
1: I had to get rid of a few of my uh tt cables just because i realized they're intermittent and that was you know like that sort of thing And, and and it was and it's a time suck in the studio and then you lose a take because something started going weird in the middle of a take and that could have been the take you know
0: yeah exactly so might as well try try as much as you can to alleviate all those problems before the session starts and then you're gonna it's gonna run a lot smoother that's awesome. Um, yeah, you, you were talking a little bit about, uh, drums earlier and, uh, I did want to ask you about that cause I've heard you talk about uh, in some other interviews, you've mentioned that when you like to mic up your snare drum, you like to mic it up with three mics and you usually do one on top, one on the bottom and one on the side. And I, I'm curious to get your input on like, what, what is it that's so special about that kind of setup? Cause I, you don't really hear too many people talk about using the side mic.
1: Well, he- here's how it happened. I, uh, I... Rage Against the Machine was doing Evil Empire at a studio owned in Hollywood. And I noticed that's what was going on. You know, I saw saw the, there was a 57 on, like it was actually over the little hole on the badge and it doesn't matter if it's on the hole or not. But I came back and I tried it and I was like, oh, there's a lot of mid-range information there that there isn't between the top and bottom mic. There's just like, there's just some beefiness that's there. And it's not that I can't work without it. It just makes my life a little easier. Uh, I like part of the sound of the drum is the drum. It's not just the head, it's the drum. And that part's generally in phase with the top mic. Uh, It's the, you know, it's usually the bottom. You have to flip the polarity on, Um, but it just, it just, Makes the drum sound better for me, and I've 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 gotten to a point where I'm using 441s on both the top and the side, not just because 441 has a lot of nice low end in it, but they have such excellent rejection. I don't have to worry so much about the uh, the high hat bleed when I ultimately compress the snare later on. Um, it's just going to be a little easier to have less bleed. I'm I, I might not actually have to gate it uh, and, and, you know, rejection off axis rejection is always a good thing to think about in drums. Cause you have so many different mics and you got so much bleed from so many different things. This is why, you know, I've, I've, I get so much shit from people because of my, uh, uh, my war on 421 on Tom's, which I really just kind of do to annoy people because so many people do it, but there is a point to it. And, and, and of course, if anyone's ever on a session, just know if someone's on a session and the engineers got 421 on mics, they post it on Facebook and they tag me, you know, just to see like, Hey, Nico's doing it. I'm like, okay, I love you, Nico. You can do whatever you want, but there's other things to think about. And the reason that I always say, it's not my favorite mic on a tom. It has nothing to do with how the tom sounds. The tom sounds wonderful. What's going on from the sound coming up here and the symbols? The off-axis sound. The off-axis sound. The symbol sounds. I'm picking up the part of the symbol I don't want to hear, and now I have to gate the toms when I'm mixing. So when you have like three, four, five. 8 10 mics on a single instrument you have to think how they're all interacting and it's drums aren't just one instrument it's it's a bunch of different instruments making up the thing and um, it's one larger organism and that's that's kind of how i always approach that and that's why even the third mic on the on the snare is is part of the sound for me i mean part of this it's part of the, it's why it's part of why i do the overhead configuration that i do because of the snares, the way the snare sounds it's not so much the way the cymbals sound; it's the way the snare sounds in the overhead that makes me happy.
0: So, as far as uh, as far as the side mic goes, because uh, I do want to ask you about your overheads, um, but as far as the side snare mic goes, are you angling it bi- kind of in a similar way to like the top mic? Is it all like for phase? It's just
1: it's just it's just directly ninety degrees going to the shell.
0: Gotcha. Have you have you ever mic'd up one of those vented snares, like the ones that have like the giant holes in them? uh
1: i don't know that any of my i don't know that any of them giant holes in them they all kind of just have a regular you know
0: i'm I'm curious i I happen to have a a vented snare it was like a custom-made snare that i got that has like um like two inch holes on the side of it Uh. which which makes it like super super sensitive it it actually sounds incredible it makes it super loud as well um and i i know like i've we've I've, I haven't i have experimented with it live in, or sorry, in the studio by micing up the side, but live we tried it and it didn't work live, but, uh, but now I'm curious. I gotta, I gotta try it out. Cause yeah. Yeah. For me, like I
1: said, for me, it's more about the sound of the shell than it is the sound of the air. Yeah. Um, and I want to get some of that sound of the shell. I just sort of play with the blend. My particular thing I like to do is I like to play with the blend, bust them into an EQ And then after that, I sort of EQ what I want. You know, I'm typically adding a bunch of 10K to get the crispness and probably adding some 100 and then maybe going to do some three or some five in the mids. And uh, then it sounds like, you know, it's cracking.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Got some meat on it.
0: So then as far as the overheads go, because you, you said that you you position your overheads really for snare optimization, what kind of overhead techniques are you using? Or, or is it just like a matter of angling them more at the snare? or I, is it? I'm, a
1: a, I'm an isosceles triangle guy, unless somebody tells me they want something different. But gotcha. I like that because what I'm trying to capture with the overheads is a picture of the drum kit. I'm not trying to capture the cymbals. I'm just trying to capture the whole drum kit. Um, and I just find that that technique of the, you know, the one over and then the one over the Tom, like this, uh, pointing at the snare, um, gives me a, a perfect stereo look at the kit from left to right or whichever perspective you want to put it in. And then, uh, I just have to make sure that, um, the relative phase between my close mics and that, uh, are, are working. Uh, and every time, and so I'll, I'll, I'll introduce another mic and I'll listen to that one solid with the overheads. And if the bass goes away, I flip the polarity and then the bass comes back. That's, that's the relative phase that I want for those, for those two mics. And I do that every mic I introduce. Yeah. I, I, because, and, and for me, ultimately, like that's the difference between using uh, samples and a real drum kit. It's a, it's a, it's an organism. It's not just drums and cymbals. It's a mm-hmm. kit. You're, it's going to sound like a real kit because as much as close mics have a thing and that is a sound, that's not really what a snare sounds like. You know, The snare sounds like what it sounds like when you're a f- few feet away. Um, so the blend between those two things uh, is what works. And like I said, occasionally there's times where I have to go with something else where I can't do that. Where maybe I I'm, I'm just doing two overheads and not one on the side. But it's it's if you know, like when I record Vinnie Colletta, I have to just do overheads. There's too many. There's eight thousand drums. <laughs> I can't you know put one over. It's it's not going to work. Um, but but the idea is the same. The the overheads are pointing towards the snare, uh, not towards the cymbals.
0: Gotcha. And then do you treat your overheads? Cause I know some people will think of their overheads more of a all around kit mic versus cymbal mics. Like do you, do you, how do you, how do you approach yours?
1: Except for the one producer that I work with who happens to be downstairs right now, who <laughs> always wants me to capture the cymbals. Um, that's what I do. And, and uh, I tend to, I like a C12 or 251 type mic. Uh, there's other things that'll work, but that's kind of the easiest thing for me. Um, because I can, I, because uh, I either have them or I'm in studios that have them, I, I run it through a pole tech and usually add some like maybe eight or something just to kind of brighten up. Uh, sometimes I'll actually take away a little low end out of it. Uh, and the reason I like the tech is just because it's so smooth, it's so broad. I, I, I pick a really broad cue on it. Uh, and I like a little bit of compression on that overhead just because I can, if I do something really fast like a Neve 33609, what it's catching is the snare. So I can control, I, I watch the reduction and I can control my snare to symbol ratio by that. Um, if I want more snare in the overhead, I'll use less reduction. If I want less snare in the overhead and have kind of like an, uh, a a more even sounding kit, then I'll, I'll, I'll hit the compressor harder. Uh, and you know, compression also will give you a little more sustain in the overheads and things like that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's good to know. Cause yeah, I think a lot of people don't really know how to, uh, you know what they're really looking out for when it comes to compression on overheads and I, th- I think you brought up a good point there just like you can get a little bit more of an even sound when you're controlling the loudest part of the kit which is typically going to be the snare drum cutting through the overheads because even th- even this even though the cymbals are closer to the mics they're not always the loudest thing and they're not always the most like you know explosive in the mix and the snare is the snare is definitely going to be the more consistent thing that's happening throughout the whole track too
1: yeah and it it's funny if you listen to a lot of those the uh, um the beatles multi-tracks that are out there it's, it's amazing to hear how much compression there is on the overhead you know and and that that in 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 that situation it really helps because those are songs where you really want the ride and whatnot to really come out and that's another thing too is i don't like i don't like riding i don't like miking a ride separately if i don't have to uh and, and generally that's how i will position my overhead so that the way the ride comes through and and compression can really help even those things out you know but i'm not too heavy-handed with it i think i think andy johns is easily considered one of the greatest uh rock engineers of all time and and my understanding is he he compressed pretty hard on the overheads
0: well it gave you them part of the sound that we know of the Beatles is, is because of that compressed sound, right? It's yeah, there's, there's a magic to it for sure. That's awesome. Um, I'd love to ask you a little bit about, uh, one of your projects that you've worked on that I I think is like, as far as your, the artist that you've worked with is someone that just jumped out to me. and, And that's Johnny cash. Um, you got to work with him and I'm just curious to know, like, you know, how did that project come out, come about and what was it like working with him? Uh, what happened was my friend Vicky
1: Hamilton started a little label. Vicky was Guns N' Roses' first manager. And then she wound up working at Geffen after uh, G&R got signed. And then she, in the 90s, she started her own little label. And Rick Rubin was working with Johnny at the time and said to, to Vicky, you should sign June Carter Cash. And June was part of the Carter family, which is you know, that's, that's like the, to country music, what Chuck Berry is to rock and roll. You know, it, so much of it starts with the Carter family and she's a phenomenal writer. She wrote ring of fire. Oh, wow. Yeah. Everyone credits more Merle Kilgore, but according to June Merle was basically just in the room. <laughs> but that's, that was her song. And the original idea was to have Nick Lowe produce it. Uh, Nick was married to Carlene Carter and then uh, Rod, uh, Rodney Crowell, who was married to um, Roseanne Cash, was also going to play on it. And Marty Stewart, who I can remember who Marty was married to, but another one of the daughters. And it was going to be June Carter Cash and the ex-son-in-laws. Um, and then Nick not wind up, not being able to do it. And Vicki asked if I would co-produce it with, uh, Johnny and June's son, uh, John Carter cash. And that's how that came about. Uh, and I managed, and we did it in a log cabin because, uh, John was very, we were going to do it in the studio, but John was very ill at the time. He had just been in a coma for two weeks. Uh, he had pneumonia, and he wanted to be close to the house so he could come over. So it was, so that was June's record, but John was on it, and he was there for all of it. Uh, and that was in less than ideal circumstances. And they, there was, I, I had to bring um, a whole coffin full of recording gear because there wasn't a lot of great gear at and the log cabin. And it somehow worked out, but that was uh, one of my favorite experiences ever because they were just such wonderful people. And I get to have this experience a lot where I'm working with someone and it's someone whose records I've heard my whole life. And it's either they're playing or they're singing. And, and I hit, you know, I hit red and I hear it. I'm like, wow, it's to them. It's them, (laughs) you know, it's like, I hear that thing. I'll never forget it. It was just like uh, one of the Rod Stewart records. It's right over here in my living room, Rod, I I hadn't recorded him yet, but Rod came over, he picked up one of my acoustic guitars and started playing. So he started singing something and that voice came out. You're like, it's that voice. It's coming out of that dude right there. (laughs) And and, and with Johnny is such a distinctive thing. It's just so mind blowing to hear that, you know, you start recording you're like wow and 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 he actually i thought sounded better the older he got it's it's interesting because he was never really a great singer his pitch was so he sort of a little off um he was a great storyteller and that's what was so you know and he had such great presence and he was such a great character but as he got older i thought not only did his pitch get better but he just it 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 a friend of mine said it's like the Mount Rushmore of vocals. It's just, it it was like granite, uh, just his resonance and his tone, uh, was so majestic. And so it had so much, you know, gravitas to it. Um, it was, it was phenomenal to, to, to be able to, to, to work with him.
0: I bet. It's funny. Cause you, you'd mentioned that Johnny wasn't necessarily like, Perfect with his pitch, and and I've heard you talk about how um, the far side banks of Jordan is one of the favorite your your favorite recordings that you've ever done. And I've also heard you say that you know when you look back on it, there are imperfections in it, but you still believe that that was the best thing you've recorded. And I'm curious to know, like when it comes to someone like Johnny Cash who has such a legacy to him, and knowing that maybe he wasn't the most accurate with his pitch and all that. Did you feel any sort of pressure to make it feel more flawless? Like when you, when you hear those, those mistakes that you make fi- that you might fix in other recordings, did you feel like a pull to want to do that? Well, now when I say someone's not great in their pitch, you know who else wasn't great in their pitch?
1: Frank Sinatra, you know? And like, again, the point is Frank was, is his delivery. Like the guy knew how to sing a song. Um, And, and so he wasn't like money, like a lot of of singers are. So you have to be judicious about things and just knowing when is it wrong? Like June had very wild pitch. uh, And I had to spend a lot of time, you know, in the very early versions of auto tune, like making that right. Um, But, but without making her sound like lose the character of the fact that she's off a little bit. So, and I don't, I don't really know that I had, I I don't remember if I had to do much or if any tuning on John, but uh, that always becomes a taste thing. It's like you can over polish something to where it loses its magic and its character. And that's the reason why I always say that's my favorite and my best recording, because what I kept, what I believe I captured was the emotion and the spirit in that room. And I could have ruined it by quantizing everybody or, you know, uh, I, I just, you know, there was a couple overdubs and some things. And I had to ask myself, what belongs in here? What captures the spirit? What makes us better? Not what makes it perfect. You know, I'm Mm. not making a Steely Dan record Um, and I'm not making it or or I'm not making a, uh, you know, whatever perfect pop record. Uh, This is about I I want people to feel like they're sitting in this log cabin with us and they can hear the fact that when the song's over, everybody in this room has tears in their eyes.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I love that, and I, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because I was curious to know like how you go about deciding which projects get that edited treatment versus which ones you're a little bit more relaxed with. I
1: think part of it is you're deciding with the artist what kind of record they're they're making. There's certain things that are just wrong to me. I, I've been I've been accused of being a museo once on a project because someone was playing a chord that was just it's like no, you can't just play a dominant seven chord in there. I know it's all Hendrix and whatever, but it, that doesn't work on that particular chord. Cause that note, let me, here's, here's the chord you're playing. Listen to the melody you're singing. There's a clash and, and they're like, oh, you're being a muso. I'm like, maybe, but it sounds wrong to me and I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, that happened once. Uh, and I don't know if, you know who's to say that i was right and they were wrong or 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 that i wasn't wrong um you you just sort of try to make the best judgment you can and and you've probably heard me say this since you've listened to my interviews uh once you reach a, a a level of proficiency it comes down to opinion and a lot of opinion is formed on taste um and if you agree with my musical tastes and my sensibilities of recording, then you hire me and you, you, you trust my instinct. If you don't, then you hire somewhere else or, or you tell me to shut up and, you know, do what you're paying me to tell me to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it makes sense. I mean, you're going to, you, you want to have people that have the same vision as you do when you're working on a project and that's what it comes down to. And, and yeah, I think, um, you know, going back to that question about just like editing vocals and and when to do it it's it's just like knowing that everyone's on the same page with it, knowing what kind of what the, what the vision is for the project um and I'm sure certainly like you know, working with someone like Johnny's got such a legacy to him and such a catalog of of music, it's like you're not you're not gonna be that person that makes the first share sounding Johnny Cash record the super auto-tuned and all that you know like you, that'll definitely ruin ruin all of that legacy right
1: <laughs> correct
0: and that was and like June knew
1: her her pitch was whack and that was you know she wrote about it it was never she would talk about how she'd always get the elbow from her sister during Carter family uh um performances and and I had to ask myself like What'll make her sound like her, but make this something that's easier for people to listen to. And no one accused me of auto tuning her in the end. And then, and and so I I feel like I succeeded if I can do it and be unobtrusive. uh, That's the important thing. You know, I don't want people to notice my work in the, in the end. I just want people to notice the artist. Uh, I had a point on that and I forgot what it was, but anyway,
0: no, that's but, but, but I think that that is a, that is a very good point in itself. It's just like y- the, the artist is the, is the star of the songs. And so the, the producers, you shouldn't be able to like hear the work that someone else has done and, and you hear that stamp. It's, it comes down to the artist.
1: There are certain producers you know, an artist puts a record out and I hear that producer. That's what I hear, you know, and who's to say that's wrong. You hear, uh, you listen to yes, 90210. I don't hear yes, I hear uh, Trevor Horn. And actually it was his project and they brought, it wasn't, you know, they brought John Anderson back in and it worked. But I I, I noticed that sometimes where a producer works with an artist and it's like, man, I can't wait to put my stamp on that person. Um, I'm a huge Elvis Costello fan and uh there's a point where he stopped working um with uh 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 who did i just mentioned was going to produce the uh, june's record originally um this is what I, don't 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 become 50 you forget everything <laughs> nick Lowe. so he stopped working with nick Lowe because you know I, I don't know if it was the label pressuring him to have a hit but he went with win stanley langer and and it and it now it sounds like different records and they're great records but it just sounds it sounds like what they were doing on all those hit records you know when, And 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 there's other producers that you, you you can you can see it and i see it and i don't know that necessarily serves the artist for the producer to have that heavy a hand unless the artist has decided Wow, I want to make, you know, I want to work with I wanna work with this producer because I want my record to sound like that other thing they did. But I, but I I sometimes that's just not the case. I just see a producer come in and just go, we're gonna do my thing and and be oblivious to what the artist is 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 doing. And it's just like, well, my thing works, let's do it. Um
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's certainly records out there that you can you can pinpoint it. Like I, I think of like the Ramones. Like I love all the early Ramones stuff, and you can tell once they started working with Phil Spector, it was like that's a Phil Spector record, you know. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it's like again, as long as everyone's on the same page with what the goal is, what the sound's supposed to be, then you just hope that you have the you have the right team there to to make that sound happen. And.
1: And I think it's also really important not to stay in any preconceptions you have and be flexible and know when something's not working or or sometimes just, you know, or sometimes you have to have the faith that this is going to work and we got to figure out how to make this work.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, JJ, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you have a band in your basement, literally working on a record right now. So, uh, so I'm going to let it's you okay. go to that, but, uh, but I do want to thank you for taking the time to hop on here today. Um, if people want to learn more about you, follow you online or potentially even work with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, well, I have a website, which is, uh, JJ You can find me there. I'm on Instagram as I think it's J period J period Blair. I'll tell you really quickly. Um, yeah, I'm on Instagram as jperi, j. Blair, and that's the best place to follow whatever crazy stuff I'm doing recording and non-recording. Um, but if you want to get in touch with me, uh, jjblairrecording.com is a good place. And, um,
0: yeah, there's a, there's a, always a link there. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do it.
1: Hey, thanks for asking. And, uh, I, I, I appreciate you, uh, uh, watching and listening to other things and and noticing that maybe, maybe I was, I might be helpful. So, uh, it's good to, it's good <laughs> it's to super know helpful. that there,
0: there's so much good stuff in this interview. I think people are going to love it, man. Okay, great. I hope so. All right. That was my interview with JJ Blair. I hope that you enjoyed that. I thought that was really informative and I love the way JJ approaches using microphones and I love his technique of Approaching microphones like EQs and picking the right microphone for the job and being really mindful of that as you're recording. And I think that that is really important because, yeah, it can drastically change the sound depending on the type of microphone you have. And when he told the story about working with Smokey Robinson, I think that's I think that that is a great example of how a microphone can really affect the tone that you get when you're recording a singer. So it's definitely something to consider next time you go to record vocals as well. I also love all the little tips that he gave about how you can use microphones in different ways. You know, sharing his idea of using a microphone in figure eight pattern to reduce a little bit of the top end. I thought that was a really cool technique. And some of the stuff that he got into about rejection with the back of the microphones, that is also a really important point to consider as well when you're recording. So I just thought that was a really fun conversation. I thought there was a lot of nuggets of really great information in there. So I hope that you found that helpful and that you can implement a lot of this stuff into your next sessions and get really good recordings right at the source by using a lot of these techniques. Now, if you did enjoy that episode, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live. And also, I say this in every episode, but make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And that's where you can find tons of great resources designed to help you make the process of recording, editing, and mixing your music really, really easy. And on the website, I've got tons of great stuff for you to check out. There's some freebies, there's some courses, there's my book, there's coaching programs. A lot of great resources designed to help make that process simple for you, and one of which that you definitely want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. That is my book where I break down the process of mixing step by step, walking you through all of the things you need to consider along the way from which tools to use, what what steps to take, what order to work in, what to be listening for, all of that stuff so that you have a great understanding of how to create pro sounding mixes from your home studio so that there is no guesswork to it. You're not feeling scatterbrained. Instead, you have a very clear focus and you can get things done really, really easily. So check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you found it very helpful and I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.